This is the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler. The largest conservation organization in the world is the Nature Conservancy. Today's guest is the state director for Missouri. Ironically, we went to rival high schools in Indiana, didn't know each other growing up 10 or 15 miles apart, but became really good friends in Missouri through our conservation work. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brandon. It's great to be here as always. Love talking with you. Yeah. So a lot of people know the name Nature Conservancy, but because it's not Ducks Unlimited, National Wild Turkey Federation, you know, one of the big NGOs that have the name of the species that they work on and represent in their name, it's kind of a a broad approach to conservation. So what is the Nature Conservancy? Well, that's a great question. Thank you for it. And I'd be surprised if a lot of people even know the name, the Nature Conservancy, to be honest. Um, I get the Nature Conservatory a lot. I get to you work. So it's a governmental organization. You work for the DNR a lot. Um, I, and I think that's that showcases our, our current strategy, really, and our our history of 65 years, which is we were always about going about our work quietly uh, with willing sellers, with partnerships, with collaboration. And that doesn't make news a lot. I think we were one of our slogans for a while was quietly preserving the last great places. And I think we did that really well on the quietly front and on the preserving great places front. I think we've protected over a million acres of fee simple land over that tenure. And that just continues to grow exponentially as we work on larger and larger scales. But to your question, what is the Nature Conservancy? Who is the Nature Conservancy? The mission of the Nature Conservancy is to conserve the lands and waters on which all life depends, which you are right. That is a pretty broad statement. And that mission has changed over time. used to be more more hardcore biodiversity focused with a history. We grew up as a land trust as Land Trust started working our way through the various states and sizing up what we thought were the last pockets of biodiversity that needed to be protected and did really well at that. So we are currently in all 50 states and then we're in 72 countries around the world. We've got about 5,000 staff members. Yeah, we, we have grown a lot. And I think as we grew, we started realizing that we couldn't just be a land trust. If we were just a land trust that worked on where biodiversity is now and says, let's draw a line around that map. Let's try and protect it. Let's raise money. Let's buy it. Let's restore it. That's cool. But if you're not looking at the big meta dynamics that are happening above that landscape, it's not going to survive 50 years, 100 years. It, it won't. It can't have changing temperatures. It can't have changing demand for food, fuel, fiber. Everything that that place needs to produce and have benefit it are impacted by things way bigger than that. So we need to start looking at broader strategies like where energy comes from, how we, how the sustainable agriculture world works, because we need food as people. And so where do we put those and have people and nature both thrive into the future? And I think that's what that, that statement is the best capture of what I think we are all about which is how do we come up with solutions where both people and nature can thrive in the future? And that 
can look different and it changes every day and we need to be ready to engage in places that we didn't 30 years ago. So back in episode three of Prairie Prophets TV with Professor Lisa Schulte Moore, there's a scene where she becomes emotional, like gets Mm -hmm. choked up talking about the fact that biodiversity isn't changing fast enough in our country. You mentioned biodiversity a number of times. For those that don't know, what is biodiversity and why is it so important to the natural world? Well, Brandon, my background is business and big problems and solutions. So I won't know what the technical definition of biodiversity is to rattle off for you, but I can give you my interpretation of what biodiversity is, which is when I think about biodiversity and I hear biodiversity described, I usually hear of it described in the form of a web or in the form of a rope. So I'll take rope. Rope is if you have a big honking rope that you're using to do whatever, tow things. If you start losing strands from that rope, you're losing strength in that rope. I think the world as an ecosystem or your backyard as an ecosystem is made up of hundreds and hundreds of species, all that have different functions and roles. And so it's easy to look at an ant and go, who needs ants? Well, something needs ants, Brandon. Um, That bird that needs ants that also grows up and fuels this and pollinates this and brings that berry over here, that all of that web is interconnected. And collectively, I think of that as biodiversity. All the plants, animals, and natural communities that represent life on Earth is biodiversity in my mind. So if you, we are losing species at a pretty rapid clip. And I think it's especially aquatic species, but terrestrial species as well. And I think sometimes individual species, you can look at and go, well, does the world, do people really need that to thrive? You can conceivably answer no right now with what you know about the world's population and what medicine looks like and where we get X, Y, Z. But 30 years down the road, that could be different. We as humans don't fully understand the complexity of interconnectedness that comes from that species to all the other species that are in that system. And boy, when when one of them might disappear that you didn't realize how critical it was and what that changes for something that you really care about. So I think there's no question in my mind that we as humans are better off not losing species, period. Hence the protection of biodiversity. Some of them are very clearly, there's only certain areas they live and there's only so many of them left. Other ones are, um, they can disappear rapidly if we're not thinking about that and how our work and how our impact on the planet impacts the species that are living all around us. I would say that it's a pretty good personal interpretation of what biodiversity is. To simplify it, I think if you look at a cornfield, there's one species growing in a cornfield, corn. If you look at a bean field, it's beans. Historically, there would have been dozens and dozens of species growing on that same acre that is now a monoculture, meaning just one species at a time. So bringing a biodiversity back means letting all those species that historically belong there return to that landscape. Now, clearly, we're not going to do that on all of our acres, especially our prime agriculture acres. But the Horizon 2 grant, which the Nature Conservancy is part of, we're all going to focus collectively on returning biodiversity to marginal lands and then being able to harvest those grasses and turn them into renewable energy. So one thing that I'm real proud of, and you and I have talked about this as friends many times, is the divide between agriculture 
and conservation closing. We both enjoy working on that. And here we have this opportunity where the Nature Conservancy and a number of other conservation partners are involved in this grant, along with a lot of agriculture partners and renewable energy partners, to work together to find the best balance. What is your take on what we're trying to accomplish with Horizon 2, and why did you want to be involved with it? It offers remarkable potential. When I try to think about what our chapter of the Nature Conservancy should spend time on, it's things that have the potential to be transformative at a much bigger scale. And if you look at the agricultural community and its historical stewardship of a lot of a lot of land, that is awesome. And and there's there's conservation ethic embedded in that historically, where people own family farms, they would know what they could take from that land and what they needed to give back to that land. You have these large landscapes that are in agriculture. You know that they need to produce food. You know that they need to produce a whole bunch of things, oftentimes energy, increasingly energy in this project. Yet you want to try and find a way to produce that with sustainable at minimum or regenerative types of outcomes where you're actually you're improving the land while you do that. And I think this project has the potential in and of itself, like the defined project in in solution that is being thought out. That's one bucket. But then two, when you when you look at what you just described, the big cohort of people all interested in coming together to share knowledge and information and their perspectives on how to try and make that happen. The projects that I love the most are ones that have the possibility of unexpected outcomes. We know what we're trying to do in that project, but there's still the possibility of having things achieve even more than we thought. Or we learn something really critical together in that project because it's real work touching the ground on real places. And you can have surprise outcomes that you go, oh, my goodness, I never expected that we could have that return when X happened. How did that work? And then all of a sudden we figure out a solution that works for other people. And all of a sudden the acreage starts totaling up and biodiversity benefits, people benefit, et cetera. So I, I love the project and that's why TNC is involved in it. Rudy and Raceline more holistically has worked really hard on trying to bring that solution forward. And I, I feel honored that we get to be a part of trying to bring some expertise that we have to the game and some land that we have and connections that we have to the game. And if everybody puts that stuff on the table together, and says, all right, let's work on piecing these things together for the best possible outcomes. That's an awesome project to be involved in. And I think that's exactly how you all have set it up. And we're thrilled to be a part of it. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Now, it's Missouri Nature Conservancy and Iowa Nature Conservancy that are involved in the grant. How do the different state-by-state chapters work together? What's the relationship there with the state-by-state model that the Nature Conservancy has? It's a great question. So Graham McGaffin is their state director, so my counterpart in Iowa. But TNC, unlike, like I know you and I met a good bit with or with CFM, and so NWF is a good a good group to showcase the difference of in terms of just setup, not one's right or one's wrong. But we are not a collection of affiliates. We the Nature Conservancy is one big five hundred one c three nonprofit. Even though I am stationed in and I'm, I'm in charge of a division or department, however you want to consider it in kind of traditional terms, that business unit is Missouri. I'm an employee of the Nature Conservancy overall. Uh, so is my counterpart in, in Iowa and his 30 staff or 25 staff. 
So we all work for the same big group, but then we're in charge of trying to say, okay, what does the mission mean here in Missouri? And how do I raise money for driving that work forward? But I am very closely aligned and coordinated. Graham and I, so the state director of Iowa, and I are on the same management team, leadership team that reports to our boss within the division, which is the Great Plains Division. So one of the big priorities of the Great Plains Division is grasslands. So our three priorities are grasslands, climate, and people. And the people side is a lot of sustainable agriculture, sustainable grazing, and actually our bison work. So our work throughout the Great Plains that involves bison has a lot of connectivity to to tribes and First Nations and Indigenous people. And we're, we're increasingly partnering more and more on that on purpose. So shorter answer is we're buds. We work very closely. Our teams work very closely together. And this is a great point that we've known all along, which is conservation doesn't stop at state borders. It, it bridges across and we're used to working that way. And this is one more such example. Well, I think it's interesting that the largest conservation organization on the planet breaks it all the way down to state by state. And I, yeah. I feel like that's the right model because what we need in Missouri isn't the same as what's needed in Maine or right. California. I mean, overarching, there's certainly topics that are crucial across the country, across the globe, but to have resources that are allocated to grasslands in Missouri versus coastal restoration in California, yeah, that just makes a lot of sense to me. Agreed. Yeah, I agree. And to, to bolster that even further, we each have separate boards of trustees, so they're advisory But if you think of your backyard land trust and it has a board of trustees that helps oversee their work that are not, that are volunteers, they're not paid staff members. So Iowa has a board of trustees, Missouri has a board of trustees, Kansas has a board of trustees. So they all have boards of trustees that are advisory, even though though we have a fiduciary board that's at the large organizational level. But that means I have 25 community representatives, experts, titans of business, you name it, that are spread out across Missouri and Kansas City. St. Louis, up by Columbia, down in the Ozarks, et cetera. And that just helps keep us rooted in on the ground. What do we need to do here in these places um, even further? And they have the clout to help shape the overall organization, too, so that the broader organization doesn't start just thinking about California or just about Maine or just about Missouri. You You have a lot of voices in the room with power that can ensure that we're staying laser focused on that, on that mission that is relevant all the way down to all the places we care about in the United States and beyond. Well, what are some of the other issues you're working on in Missouri besides the grassland initiative with Horizon 2? Our big priorities, biodiversity protection is one, and that's fairly all-encompassing, but a lot of that is our traditional land trust work and land protection work and stewardship. So that encompasses our fire and stewardship team, which is a great collection of people that work cross cross partnership with MDC, DNR, Fish and Wildlife Service, Forest Service. And we just say, all right, what needs prescribed fire? What needs invasive treatment management? What are the places that are across our land holdings? What needs it most this coming year? How do we prioritize that together? How do we get the equipment together? How do we pull grants to do that? And let's go make it happen, whether it's on TNC's property or MDC's or DNR's. That's been a really effective model. We have various strike teams throughout the state that are doing that, largely in the Ozarks, but a new one that's coming up to Dunn Ranch in the grassland area this coming year, which is great. Sustainable agriculture and grazing, 
the agriculture side is a lot about nutrient management. So partnering with in the agricultural space to help promote 4R certification. So 4R stands for right rate, right place, right time, right source of fertilizer. So when you put that out on the ground and where it comes from makes a big difference in how much stays in that soil helping produce crop versus running off and going into the into the waterways and then impacting the health of our waterways around Missouri. On the grazing side, Dunn Ranch is our large largest demonstration area for sustainable grazing. And you've seen it, Brandon. Um, that area was a lot of fescue and cool season grasses at one point in time, but we also had this anchor location of Dunn Ranch that we had restored over time and was unplowed prairie. A large chunk of it, a thousand acres of that was unplowed prairie, so it had 40 foot topsoil. We used that to restore a variety of other things. But as we looked around and said, okay, this is great. Hopefully the neighbors will all say, that's amazing that you have tall grass prairie over there. How do we get that? They don't, you know, unless we know and have tested out the forage benefit to cattle, then it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's pretty and there's bison out there and there's a lot of butterflies, but they're not looking at how do they convert their 3,000 acres of what they're accustomed to in cool grass that they're used to and they know the weight gain on cattle. How do they come to understand or find, okay, maybe 20% of my property should be in this stuff because it provides resilience. So we've started building out a lot of projects. We work with a local rancher up there, Brian, and he's done awesome and converted one of our properties into a paddock system for rotational grazing so that we can work on converting from fescue to tall grass prairie and natives uh, over time more easily while keeping the same number of cattle on there. So that's a great example. And then we have a grass bank up there as well where we're bartering conservation on someone else's property in exchange for their ability to graze on our property. So in essence, there's a couple hundred acres north of Dunn that we swap with two different farmers or ranchers where we say, if, you, if you'll go through conversion on your property, some of it to natives, you can graze equal acreage of that conversion on our property while you go through it so that it buys time for you to rest that area for two years for that prairie to establish. So that's a cool example. Then on the water side is a, we call them nature-based solutions. A lot of that stuff is like how do we how do we protect our waterways by handling problems differently? And we try and demonstrate that those can work. So one example is the levee setback up in Atchison County. Huge project with the Army Corps of Engineers and others. And it floods, you know, it floods, it floods, it floods, it breaches the levee, it breaches the levee, it breaches the levee. That's expensive when the Missouri River breaches the levee into, into ag land and devastates communities. That community, Rockport, did a terrific job of saying, we would like to not just replace this levee right where it is. Are there different solutions that are available? We helped facilitate that overall discussion between the core and NRCS and the levy board and us and other partners and designed a new levy that was called a levy setback, which gave that room, that river more room to spread out. But that required easements and buying out landholders that wanted to move that were tired of being flooded and giving them replacement land elsewhere. So pretty complex, but ultimately that connected 1,500 acres of floodplain that wasn't there onto the Missouri River and probably reduces flooding in that area by two feet with big major events, which can have a huge impact and is more cost effective in the long term and provides a crap ton of waterfowl habitat and awesome habitat. There's these floodplain pockets are out there, which you and I are hunters and know that, that that means a lot and putting more of that on the ground is really important. So that does that up there. We're doing um, 
things as simple as road crossings and culverts in waterways to solve stream erosion and stream bank stuff with something other than giant cobbles of white rock that you just throw up on the bank and hope it stabilizes. Instead, you can use nature in different ways to stabilize that stuff and produce habitat. So it's a broad range of stuff. And I would say it's all anchored by a strategic plan for us because you could we could get lost in doing everything that is a mile wide inch deep and we are we are dedicated to not doing that so we have five priority strategies that we'll work on for the next five years have specific measurables of acreage and river miles and carbon sunk in the ground and fire put on the ground all of those things form this big dashboard for us that we measure our success against and um, we've been really effective and hope to continue doing so brandon well you're doing great work man i'm really proud to call you a friend and, and be associated with the Nature Conservancy really through you and a few other friends I've met over the last few years. I was one of those people that didn't really know that much about the organization, but yeah. I've come to respect what the Nature Conservancy does immensely. The, the model is incredible. You guys put your money where your mouth is and you're doing real important on the ground habitat work. So a tip of the cap to you, your staff, you. And, and the entire Nature Conservancy. Thank you now, very much. Brian. Before we get out of here, I do have to bring to your awareness that the Crown Point Bulldogs are oh, four I don't think and the sound of this already. They're um, four and oh. Now in what? In high in highlight or in football. Um, they a football. They stomped, oh, wow. They stomped Merrillville. So we are talking northwest Indiana. Adam and I graduated the same year from rival high schools. I'm a Crown Point Bulldog. He's a Valparaiso Viking. Valparaiso is a perennial powerhouse. Crown Point is on a serious upswing. So I would like to wager with you. Oh, boy. Okay. When is the game? I know where I see where it's going. It's coming up in the next few weeks, but. Okay. What's the bet? Well, I was thinking um, the loser has to take the winner on an outdoor adventure of their choice. I oh, need to uh, make amends for a pheasant I missed up on the Dunn Ranch. <laughs> you could probably use another fishing trip on the river. I love that about. fishing trip on your rat. Oh, I, could, I, I still wake up some nights thinking about streamers. Well, in I the still river tell the story about how you were looking into a foot <laughs> of water, stepped off the raft, and really cold October into yeah. about eight feet of water. So perception isn't reality folks. Yeah. Adam was standing in the raft looking into ankle deep water. He missed the drop off by about two feet and went kerplunk over his head. Okay. So yeah, I think if, uh, okay. if the crown point bulldogs win, you're taking me bird hunting again. Yeah. If the Valparaiso Vikings win, I owe you another fishing trip. I love it. I'm in always. And to the audience, that exchange is like that. If if Lisa teared up over biodiversity, this is as close to tearing up for me as, as the idea of getting out with friends <laughs> and making connections. I really mean it out, whatever it is, whether it's bird watching or hunting, fishing or hiking or mountain biking or whatever, that two friends can reminisce about time outdoors spent and find these fond memories all that stuff ends up meaning that you and i care a whole heck of a lot about conservation brandon because we've spent so much time out in it forming memories and so that would be my encouragement to listeners is 
go do that. Find find whatever it is that gets you outside connecting to nature and you'll you'll be a even better conservationist as a result of it. And this is going to take a really loyal local listener to where you and I grew up. But are you aware that Tony's place is no longer Tony's Pizza in Valparaiso? No. They closed their doors. That's a, that's yeah, that's shame. Sixty-eight years. My parents went there mm-hmm. on their first date. The good news is they auctioned everything in the building, and you know that big corner booth that was like uh, three <laughs> fourths of a circle. Yeah. You can yep. now come sit in that booth in my shop. In wow. Yeah. I bought Bravo. it. Bought Bravo. the corner booth from Tony's at auction. I got nine of the chairs and I'm that's, I got nine of them specifically to make a poker table in my new shop it. as well. So a little bit of Tony's Northwest Indiana is now living on my farm well, in Missouri. That's awesome. And if I can find the, if I can buy the recipe for shoots hamburgers, I'll buy that. And then you, I'll make you <laughs> and we'll sit in that table and we'll have a grand old time. All right. We're losing people now, but if you're hungry, go to Northwest <laughs> Indiana because it's full of good food and it produces some great conservationists like Adam McLean. Thanks for joining us today on Prairie Profits. We look forward to having you back next week. Thanks for listening to the Prairie Profits podcast with host Brandon Butler.